But uh, Psalm 90, verse 12, many of you know that uh, that verse has kind of penetrated my own thoughts over the last at least two years. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you, what's the last part? A heart of wisdom, right? And so in many respects, the, the Lord has impressed on me that um, the numbering of my days, the recognizing that they are short and uh, the brief time, particularly as it deals with my family and my children, which I have a chance to make an impact on their lives is very, very important. And there's a direct correlation there with our numbering of our own days and recognizing the brevity of them and uh, sometimes the futility of them uh, is in relation to a heart of wisdom as the Lord looks at us. So uh, I just was kind of grateful that we got some time to go. Um, as you know, it's been a year that's been quite topsy-turvy for us as we, about this time last year, knew for sure we were moving to Lynchburg and we're in the process of packing things up and, and uh, there was still three feet of snow in my backyard and I was wondering how I was going to get everything torn down and the Lord graciously allowed a lot of that to melt off before we actually had to move. And then moving here and, and uh, each day, of course, and each week uh, holds different things as you move and try to reset up your life. So the four days were uh, just a blessing. And I remember the very first morning we woke up in the hotel, my little, littlest one, uh, who was five, who has a habit of jumping in bed with me every morning uh, and giving me good morning hugs and snuggles, as he says. And uh, he said, Dad, do you have to go to work this morning? And uh, I said, no. He goes, what? I go, I don't have to go to work all this week. All right, he said. And, you know, that was a blessing to me to, that that was important for him, that uh, Dad would be... Uh, around and so we just kind of took our time and did pretty much what we'd like to do and had a, had a wonderful time and it was a blessing and the Lord allowed us to have that sweetness with the family and for I'm, I'm grateful for that I'm grateful for those opportunities to do that well we are on a tour through the book of Revelation this is part 10 believe it or not it may seem a lot longer than that to you maybe but uh, anyway we are in chapter 7 and we're going to start there in verse 1 just a little bit of review if uh, you'll Indulge me as uh, only about uh, 80% of your congregation at any one Sunday is there and you have 20% who are not. So we just kind of go over some of the things we talked about so that whenever you come and you're able to be here with us, you don't have to worry that you won't know uh, what's going on. And we've discovered, as I say all the time, we've placed ourselves right in the path of God's blessing uh, by studying this book, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads, who hears, and who keeps. That takes to heart the things written in it. And so you're already blessed just by coming. As we read the words, uh, the Lord says that is a blessing to you. So to make the most of our time and to get as far as we can, we turn to Revelation 7. And uh, we saw back in chapter 5 that there was a scroll with seven seals. And we saw as we worked our way through chapter 5 and chapter 6 that each time a seal was broken, things happened on the earth. And John was commanded to come over and watch. And we looked up through the sixth seal last time the universe in turmoil. And we know that the wrath of God was taken out on Jesus for us who are redeemed. Uh, we live in the age of grace and peace for, with God as believers. And even non-believers, believe it or not, uh, receive benefit uh, from the wrath of God taken out on Jesus. They live in peace, in prosperity, in forbearance, and blessing as a result of the grace that came through Jesus Christ and if they come to Jesus in submission to him for salvation, God's purpose for Christ bearing all sin is carried out to its desired end in them. And I think that you can put all that together. That's certainly obvious. But if they don't come to Christ and his gift is spurned, and this I think is important, then all of the peace and the prosperity and the forbearance and the blessing 
that were benefits of Christ's suffering in this age of grace become the testimony against the individual and just intensify the judgment. And really, in a sense, in some respects, I think that's what you have here in the book of Revelation. As you read the judgments that come and you recognize the things that are being said, what is happening is this, all of this grace that was poured out uh, on the world and even non-believers enjoy become really the accusers. All these rich, the richness of life that is enjoyed by all then become their accusers. And so God begins to do that. He begins to allow the spurning of his son, the spurning of the cross, to begin to testify against the world itself. And that is what we're going to start to see in chapter 6 and following. And honestly, I believe because of the nature of God, I told you this last time as we ended up, that John could only take so much of this terror and the Lord in his abundant mercy then gives John a break. And he gives periodic breaks as we go through this book. And here is one of them. And chapter 7 seems to be that. And so in chapter 7, in the center of all this calamity, some protection is going to go on. And uh, there's going to be some blessing. And there will be some people spared uh, from the judgment. Everybody's not going to be under the altar at the same time. Some believers are going to be spared. So let's start and look where the Lord wants us to look first. And really, you can look at chapter 7 kind of as a parenthetical pause, if you would. And you'll see this as we go through. Um, you know, we're going to answer some questions, really, that came at the end of chapter 6 uh, in uh, chapter 7. And look back at the end of chapter 6, verse 17, it says this, For the great day of their wrath has come, talking about the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The great day of their wrath has come. And, beloved, remember that you were not appointed for wrath, okay? So this, this time period where the Lord clearly describes for us that wrath is being poured out on the earth, you were not destined for this, but... The wrath of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb, the great, for the great day of the wrath has come. And then this question, who is able to stand? Question mark. Now, I think that in chapter 7, we get a little bit of that answer. Okay, So let's look there, if you would, and let's read all the way through verse 8. And we'll stop right there, and then we'll kind of go back and see how far we can get tonight. All right? Chapter 7, verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we've sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Verse 5. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Verse 6. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. Verse 7. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. Verse 8. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. The tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Now, let's look back then and take a look at this. And Grant, you probably need to advance a little bit, buddy. Let's go ahead and let you catch up with me. All right, there you go. Perfect. All right. Um, who, are the, who are these people? Well, these are the 144,000 Jews. The scripture is pretty clear. 12,000 out of every tribe. Now, if you're using the notes, you'll notice that some things are underlined. And when they are, that's your key to uh, fill in your blanks. 
Now, the tribe of Dan is omitted here. You may have noticed that, perhaps not. And I think as a result of gross idolatry on many occasions, Deuteronomy 29 talks about that, Leviticus 24:11, Judges 18, 1 Kings 12, 28, and following. Um, you have Dan uh, is accused of gross idolatry. We see it happen many times. And Manasseh seems to be there in his place. It's not as huge importance, I think, uh, necessarily for our study, but Joseph is not normally listed because Manasseh and Ephraim t- received his inheritance. But instead, here you have Dan left out. And throughout the scriptures, and you can notice this, uh, that um, we have some of the tribes left out from time to time. And as you study that, I've done a separate study of my own on that, just as they list the tribe names, just to compare the ones that are there, the ones that are not there, just to kind of make some sense of that and try to figure out why sometimes they're included and sometimes they're not. But Gad and Asher are not mentioned in First Chronicles 27:16, and so and, and there are many other examples, but really not pertinent to our study. But um, you'll find this happens from time to time that in certain time, certain jobs are given to the tribes and certain ones are listed and they're given a job to do, and some are left out. And sometimes God's children miss out on something, God's plan for them because of sin. It still happens today. But in case you're worried about Dan, Ezekiel 48, uh, they are included in the kingdom layout. So they're not uh, excluded in the final disposition, uh, but they're included there and they're restored graciously to the kingdom. They're just not allowed to serve in this capacity during this tribulation time period. It's not, they're not specified here as serving. We just a list here, if you will, from the mind of God. Now look back, if you would, at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or in any tree. Now, you just kind of have an idea that there are four angels here, and they're going to be given a job to do uh, in some of this destruction. But here, in particular, they're just kind of holding back temporarily, really, the atmospheric engine for our world. world. And when it says the four winds, you just basically have uh, what you normally have in your prevailing winds across the world, north, south, east, and west. They're holding those back for a time. And, uh, and they're holding those back, and they're not allowed anything to happen right at this point. In verse 2, it says, And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and sea. So, see, they have a job to do, but right now they're holding back the wind. And saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, remember that we just got through saying that um, uh, there's going to be, this is kind of a parenthetical pause, and we have some filling in, and this happens from time to time as you go through the book of Revelation. You get to see uh, from time to time some of the other things that are going on in the background. This is one of those. Now, obviously, we just read through the six, six seals, didn't we? And we saw tremendous destruction on the earth. And at the end of chapter 6, it says, this is the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb who can stand. And the question is answered, okay? So realize that we're bit, when we talk about these ceilings, we're talking about backing back up. And as this tribulation time starts to begin, we have 144,000 Jews who are being sealed and used for the Lord's purposes. And so um, right about the time this Holocaust begins, there are going to be already Jews who are saved. Uh, saved, no doubt, right after the rapture. We talked about that last time. Um, very much like the martyrs we saw under the altar, people who come to faith immediately after the rapture time. I don't think that would be, will be an unusual uh, occurrence. Um, we polled you last time how many received Christ, uh, prayed to receive Christ as their Savior the first time somebody witnessed to you. I don't think I had any hands go up. Um, the seed is planted. 
uh, if the Lord is drawing, that seed begins to grow. And we kind of see that happen in people. And that's still the case, although uh, the church is raptured away. Um, if they were going about the business that they're supposed to be going about, they have witnessed to people throughout the course of the week or, their, or maybe the course of the month or the year, and they've planted those seeds. And uh, many will see some of these ha- things happen, particularly if we have spoken correctly about the gospel and started with the bad news, which is all men are under condemnation and the Lord is going to get their attention. And uh, un- in an unregenerate uh, state, we're under a curse and headed for an eternity in hell. People understand then as as the Lord is able to draw them, they're going to understand these types of things. And so people get saved, no doubt, right after the rapture. And these 144,000 are many of those. And uh, I like Jews, uh, Jews for Jesus. There's a number of uh, ministries that are pretty cool. But I, I like to go on their site from time to time and uh, watch them do their witnessing in New York. And they have this, uh, I think Gordon and I talked about this before, um, but they have this big ministry that goes on there uh, yearly where they'll bring in guys, guys will, uh, attorneys and doctors and people from all over the country, they will just pack up and for three weeks they'll come and stay in a tenement house in New York. And what they'll do is they'll stand on the street and they'll witness to Jews. And you see Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews walking by and spitting on them and everything else and tearing up the tracks and all of this stuff. Uh, but they are doing the, the work of witnessing. And I noticed uh, one time I was watching it with my wife and I just said, you know, that's probably some of the, it could, if, if the rapture occurs very, very soon, some of those will be some of the 144,000. Some of them may have tucked that away and may come to faith as a result of a faithful witness. And so these folks are coming to faith right after the rapture. They believe Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord, and they will go through that same period we just studied, and they'll not be able to be killed. And that's important to know. And uh, because they cannot be hurt, and this is not hard for the Lord to do, uh, they are protected. It says that in verses two and three, actually. Um, and during this, uh, and nothing can harm them. So during this tribulation time, you're going to have 144,000 Jews going around preaching the gospel. Now there seems to be some confusion about that from time to time. So realize you're speaking about the tribulation period and Jews who are coming to faith after the rapture. Okay, because 144,000 has been misused and mistranslated and used all kinds of funny ways. And just realize that this is the chronological order here. We're just kind of simply reading through the scripture and recognizing chapter 7 is filling in for us some gaps. The Lord is doing some work. Not everybody's going to be under the altar right away crying out, Lord, we've been martyred. When are you going to take out vengeance on us? There are going to be some who are going to be saved. Some will be sealed and doing the work the Lord wants done because the Lord still wants people to come to faith. Okay. He's just not wooing his people anymore, all right? Uh, He's going to get their attention one way or another. This is his world. He can wreck it if he wants to, if it gets the attention of men. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But during that time, these 144,000 are going to be doing this marvelous work. And we're going to see in just a minute how effective they really are. And you can imagine, if you've known completed Jews, uh, their background in the Old Testament and their memory and all that stuff, then combined with a recognition of the Messiah, makes them just marvelous people to talk to and just wonderful teachers. And uh, so you can just you can just imagine how uh, effective they will be. So during the tribulation time, you have 144,000 Jews going around preaching the gospel and they are going to be very effective at it. And that's not the first time the Lord has protected uh, people. Listen, it's not hard for the Lord to do this, even though you have all this calamity going on. And we talked last time about a worldwide earthquake and all the things. Every mountain moved out of its place. Every island uh, moved as well. And so. You have this huge destruction of people protected. I'd like you to turn, if you would, with me to Ezekiel chapter 9. Would you do that? It's a great parallel for us. Ezekiel 9. Just hold your place right here in Revelation 7 and turn to Ezekiel 9. And just read, I'll just read the first 11 verses. 
And just kind of give you a background on this. Uh, the prophets, of course, have been foretelling that Jerusalem was going to be besieged. People were going to be carried off into captivity. And they've been talking about this. You're wicked. Turn from your wicked ways. Finally, the Lord's determined this is what's going to happen. There's been a number of deportations already to Babylon. Uh, Daniel, of course, went with some of the first. And then uh, after that, many thousands went afterward. And Jeremiah, of course, is saying, listen, just go into captivity, right? Remember this? Go into captivity. Don't resist. Don't fight. The Lord will plant you there, and he'll prosper you there. So go on to captivity. The Lord's determined this for his people. But if you understand that's the case, and you're repentant, go, and things will go well for you there. So that's what you had. Now, it's, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem is imminent. We're in the siege time. And there are now some in the city who have been, who've become repentant. Now listen to what happens. Now the ones who are going to fight, the ones who are going to resist, the ones who are following the king, they're, they're, no, we're not giving up the city, you know, the Lord's going to fight for us, and all the false prophets, yes, no destruction's coming. All these people, they're going to be destroyed. But there are some inside the city now, destruction's imminent, who will come to faith. They will realize that they've been wrong, they will repent. Now listen to what happens, and I love this, because the Lord's going to protect these folks, even though Babylon is going to besiege the city, they're going to burn it down. They're going to burn the walls till they crumble. There's going to be amazing things going on here. And many, many thousands will be slaughtered. These people will be protected. So the Lord, this is not new that we see in Revelation. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> and he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Now, the Lord is calling out angels to come and do the destruction. And the very interesting part about this is, although Babylon is the tool the Lord is going to use to destroy Jerusalem and take the, the people captive and kill many, many. Um, angels actually are doing that, some of that work. And we're going to see this kind of uh, joint effort going on here. Now look, draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Verse 2. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. Among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a written ca writing case at his loins, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, you're going to see in just a minute that this person with a writing case is uh, Jesus Christ himself, all right? A pre-incarnate uh, vision of Christ. Now, verse 3. Then the glory of the Lord of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at, at whose loins was the writing case. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the ab abominations which are being committed in its midst. Now, what's happening here? The Lord is recognizing there, there are some in the city, even at this ninth hour, who are repentant. Uh, even though perhaps earlier they weren't willing to go into, uh, to be carried off, and they weren't willing to go into captivity, but now they recognize the Lord's right, and they're groaning at all the abomination. They're still in the city. The city's about to be besieged. And what happens? The Lord recognizes that. Now look at verse 5. But to the others he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity, nor do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women. But do not touch any man on whom is the mark. And you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with slain. Go out. And thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? So Ezekiel, seeing this vision, he recognizes this is what's going to happen, and he begs the Lord, Lord, please don't destroy everybody. 
Verse 9, Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say, The Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare, but I will bring their conduct upon our own head. Verse 11, Then behold, a man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case, reported, saying, I've done just as you've commanded me. And so, you kind of see this uh, illustration of this before, and we, we have uh, another one I'm going to show you in just a second, uh, of the Lord protecting, even though there's imminent danger, even though there's going to be huge destruction and slaughter throughout the city, there will be those who are what? Who, who, and we know that from, from history, that they were those who were protected. They were not killed in the invasion. And we see here in Revelation a very similar situation where although there's huge destruction going on in the world, there's, uh, the universe is in chaos, and there's all kinds of things happening that have never happened before, people will still be able to be protected, and the Lord is planning to do just that. Now, there's a similar idea in Malachi. People are back from exile. They've come back now into the land. They're reproved by the prophet. Some are worried, and they're doing a bunch of things they did before. People, Israel, have come back. Uh, and this is Malachi, the Italian prophet. Look, you can look there if you want. Uh, in Malachi 3.16. It's Malachi, the Italian prophet. All right, thank you. Okay. Um, hey, you know, that's, I think that's pretty good. I, you know, just some, uh, some recognition. But anyway, never mind. But they're, the people have come back from exile. They've, they've started to do the same things they've done before. Okay? And some of them are worried. Not everybody's doing the same thing, but some of them fall into the same habit. Okay? And so they, they come and, they say, and they're, they're praying to the Lord and they're worried they're going to be judged by, uh, for other people's sin. They're like, man, the Lord's got to judge the city again. We're doing the same thing we were doing. Malachi 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. Isn't that great? The Lord always does that. The one who fears him, the one who submits to him, he gives, it, he gives attention to that. That's important to him. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Isn't that great? The Lord said, okay, it's all right. Um, I'll write down all those who, who fear me and esteem my name. Don't worry, I'm not going to forget that. They will be mine, verse 17, says the Lord of hosts on the day that I prepare my own possession and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves it. And so you will again, and I love this, this is a common uh, thought throughout the Old and New Testament, I will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between ones who serves God and one who does not serve him. Beloved, the Lord is always like that. He always treats the righteous different than he treats the wicked. Always and you have all these arguments about why, you know, there's no, there's no pre-trib rapture and why. Listen, there, there's lots of, this goes back and forth. We're not going to solve, uh, if this is some of the issues you have, we probably won't solve them here. But I will just tell you that there are many things throughout Scripture besides the understanding of 1 Thessalonians 4 that give us the indication that the Lord himself treats the righteous differently than he treats the wicked. Okay? He does not submit the righteous to the same punishment and wrath the wicked go through. He takes the righteous through difficult times to make them more like his son. He brings them through trials sometimes to perfect them. But when we understand over the course of the way the Lord deals with human beings, that he understands the difference between the two, okay? The righteous and the wicked, and he treats them differently, all right? And here he says, look, I'm going to write a book. I'll, under, I'll put a book of remembrance for you that people can understand that. And I'll, I'll treat you like I would treat a son who serves me. And I'll uh, again, and say, I love that, verse 18, so you will again distinguish, not just the first time, he always distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not. Revelation 9.4, we're going to see that others are going to be sealed as well. We'll talk about that then in Revelation 9.4. But let's look back at verse 9 of Revelation 7. You can flip back there if you would, and I'll get back on task here. After these things I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude which no one could count, an uncountable number, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches, and, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, uh, where did they come from? Well, if you just kind of go in, a, in a, just a straightforward reading of the Word of God and understand the logical progression here, they have to be the fruit of whom? They're the fruit of the 144,000 who are doing their work. Okay, You're just kind of going along step by step here, just a simple reading. The passage is one of the marvelous examples of God's sovereignty and salvation. And uh, Jews are grafted out, Gentiles grafted in, Jews grafted back in to bring about a mighty evangelistic effort and turning to God of untold millions. God will choose to be saved those 144,000 and he will choose 12,000 out of every tribe. And only he knows how to connect them to their tribe, beloved, you know, because... How many times has, has Jerusalem been, been um, destroyed? How many times has uh, records been ruined and burned? He's the only one who knows all right, how to connect them all, but he knows how to do that, and he doesn't lose records. And so out of their ministry during the tribulation time, an innumerable amount of people will be saved. Now, it says that it's a great multitude that no one could count. But uh, just to give some perspective on that, chapter 9 and verse 16, uh, there's some horsemen, and they're given a number. 200 million. So that can kind of, I think that can give you some perspective. If he says that now around the throne there's a, there's a number that no one could count, but he'll put the number of the, of the horsemen at 200 million, you've got to realize that this is a huge, huge number of people. I believe that that uncountable number could be in the billions. Can you imagine? That's just awesome. I think that's awesome. And the Lord, uh, in, his, in, his, uh, in his wonder of his grace, still will allow uh, people to come to know him as their Savior. And then, of course, we have following this great outreach, all of them together, praising their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and following verse 9, we have this tremendous amount of worship uh, in the following passages in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, an uncountable number. And so these are the fruit of the 144,000 Jews. Now look at verse 9, if you would, and we'll read through verse 12. We're just going to break into worship again, which is the theme and the background always of heaven. And these things... After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues. That is just, wow. You know, you're going to hear singing, and you're going to hear uh, voices of languages from around the world praising and giving thanks to the Lord, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands, and cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. So be it. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Is that appropriate for that situation? The 144,000 doing the work that the Lord has always wanted them to do with great effectiveness and an untold multitude of people now are before the throne. And they are singing, and the angels and the elders fall down, and they say, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and power and might be to God forever and ever. Amen. And in the throng of all the voices and tongues and, and uh, the nations praising the Lord have come to faith, uh, there's this wonderful breakout of worship. Now, the question for John is, who are all these people? 
okay? And so we'll just kind of go through it. We've already named who they are, but let's just go through it uh, so that you can kind of follow the progression. And one of the elders, uh, you know, says, hey, who are these? And uh, representatives of the church age, of course, and they have been here and they have uh, seen them come in. All right, so it's not hard for them to figure out who they are. The elders are there. Uh, you as the rapture church are there. You're seeing all these untold millions come in, and uh, it's obvious who they are, but listen to the dialogue. Uh, one of them asked John that very question. Who are these people? Look at verse 13. One of the elders saying, uh, answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And here's John, of course. He's, he's like a kid in front of his dad. He's not sure how to answer any of these questions. All right, and so he says, uh, um, I said to him, Lord, you know. All right, you know the answer to this, so go ahead and give the answer. And he said to me, uh, these are the ones who come out. Now listen, just straightforward. These are the ones who what? Come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, did he say this is the church? No. Did he say this is the bride of Christ who's come out of the tribulation? No, they didn't. All right, so you have 144,000 Jews going out and doing this evangelistic work. They have this huge um, response to their teaching, and you have this untold millions coming in to uh, heaven, and you see that uh, the elder says, just seeing if John knows his stuff, who are these? And John says, you know, tell me the answer. And then he says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, let's comment on that just briefly, if you would. And I want to bring to your attention some things that are implied here, but perhaps not directly stated but it should have a tremendous impact on our motivation to do our job in the stage of grace. Verse 14 says this, that they have come from the great tribulation as part of the fruit of the 144,000. So how'd they get to heaven? They had to what? They had to die, right? That's the only way they're going to get to heaven is they're going to die. Okay? And remember the number we're speaking about. Uh, they have come to heaven then, if you just kind of think about this, 144,000 are doing their witnessing. People are hearing and perhaps perishing within the hour. All these things are going on. And so um, you have them coming in through some form of persecution, through some form of war or famine or earthquake or a number of combined incidents or as a result of, of some, you know, other things that are going on. But they are having to die. They're being killed and they're being killed by a number of different ways. And then it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This phrase, which is only found in this structure, refers to those who've been born again. And we understand that they've come into the kingdom perilously, okay? They've been martyred or they've been killed as a result of all the calamity that has come on the earth, okay? Now, if you want to make sure about that, just to, here's a cross-reference. Jot this down. It's on the screen. Daniel 11:32. all right? Daniel 11:32 32 and 33. It's going to speak about the Antichrist. It's going to say some of the things that are going on. Listen to what it says. Verse 32, by smooth words, he, this is the Antichrist, will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Now, who's he speaking about? There will be some Jews who, are, who, are, uh, who buy into the Antichrist, okay? Those who, those who act wickedly towards the covenant. Just speaking to those who are Jews, they'll, they'll see the Antichrist and they'll buy into his, his, uh, all of his things that he's going to say. All right? But... Uh, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Verse 33, those who have insight among the people, that's the 144,000 and others, uh, will give understanding to the many. And in spite of their understanding, though, what will happen? Look, yet they will fall by, what's it say? The sword and by flame and by captivity and by plunder for many days. All right? And so there's wisdom there with 144,000. The truth is going to go out. People will hear it, respond to it correctly, come to faith, and will be killed by any number of ways. All right, now look back at verse 15 of chapter 7. 
For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They sit before the throne, they are serving God in his temple, he'll spread his tent over them, literally they're part of his family, Uh, that's a place where he can welcome them, and uh, what was or will the tribulation be like for them? And for John, of course, it's a was, they've come out of the tribulation, John gets to go forward in time and see all of this happening. Uh, for us, it's still future for us. What will that be like? Look at verse 16. It kind of gives you a, uh, kind of a, a cross-section of what it would be like for them living here because of the responses the Lord says to them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Uh, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eye. Well, verse 16 says they must have been starving. Right? They're not going to hunger anymore. They must have gone without drink. They must have been without shelter. Okay, And so they must have been wandering and lost because the Lamb's going to be their guide. So they're very much like what we would imagine a world in chaos would be like. With people hearing the message of the 144,000 in some form or another. And the world is wrecked and becoming more and more that way. People trying to survive by any means whatsoever. Uh, worldwide earthquakes, m- many uh, dwellings and places of refuge will be knocked down. Tremendous inconsolable sorrow we see because he's going to wipe the tears away uh, from them. And so uh, what an awful time to be on the earth. What a great motivation for us, keeping it in the back of your mind, that this remains the real future for those who uh, turn away from Christ. For those who don't hear, this is a real future on its way. And now we come to the seventh seal, chapter 8. Let's look there and we'll just kind of wrap up uh, here because we're out of time. Now the seventh seal seems to be a response to the previous six. We're going to see the seventh trumpet as a response to the first six. We're going to see the seventh bowl as a response to the first six. And so this is not unusual, uh, the way kind of uh, the Holy Spirit has carried John uh, along to explain it to us. So this seventh seal is a response to the previous six seals. Now verse 1, by the way, in some people's proof text to prove there are no women in heaven, because it says there is silence in heaven for half an hour. (laughs) Of course, my wife says I'm the one who always talks, so... uh, I guess maybe uh, there'd be no men. But anyway, verse 1, Revelation 8. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What's that mean? Well, what's stopped? And you know this. What's going on? That's right, worship. What's going on all the time in heaven? Always in the background. A marvelous thing to think about, that as you enjoy the presence of the Lord and all the things he's created for you, that in the background, I think, uh, you can always hear uh, the marvelous celebration and worship that goes on. Well, this is going to stop for half an hour. The seventh seal, and you can write this down in your notes, the seventh seal is the silent prelude. I just kind of call it that, the silent prelude. It stops for half an hour. Why? Well, they're in awe. It's the destruction, the the cataclysm, the holocaust, the divine fury is being poured out. And it is just amazing to the people who are there. And so that's that's quiet. It's a silent prelude. Look at chapter 8, verse 2. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came. <laughs> I love having these downstairs right now, don't you? Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And we understand that that incense represents the prayers of the saints, of all the saints, and uh, the, your prayers as you pray them, and prayers of saints in bygone years, and prayers of saints that will live after us, all go up before the Lord like a pleasing aroma. 
The Lord hears them, he understands them, he recognizes what's going on, and that's going to be a constant form of worship before the Lord all through eternity, and that's a cool thing to think about. And you can imagine that there's probably, and I told you this last time, there's probably going to be prayers that you've never heard, uh, that somebody prayed in some place that was specifically meaningful to the Lord or was very important or an example of worship and uh, trust and reliance. And we'll get to hear some of those and some of the, uh, the, those who've come before us who've prayed and have been uh, in different places and lifted up praise to the Lord or asked for provision and he provided it or prayed in the way the Lord's instructed us to pray. And we'll get to hear those constantly. And I think that's awesome. Maybe some prayers that you've prayed where you've truly sought the Lord with a, with a pure heart will be part of those uh, constant uh, floating up before the Lord. But anyway, this angel, he adds incense to this censer, uh, which is added to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. Verse 4. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. That's some beautiful pageantry. Remember, everything about this worship service that's going on in heaven also is acting on the earth. So as they open the seals, every time they open a seal, something happens on the earth. And we're going to move to the trumpets. And every time a trumpet blows, which is part of this wonderful pageantry of taking back the title of the earth, things happen on the earth. And so it's awesome how this thing all goes together. Now, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar, threw it to the earth, and there followed peals of thunder, sounds of flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So you have this angel approach the throne of God. The incense is in the censer he's holding, and the incense is the prayer of all the saints and mixing together goes up before the Lord constantly. And the angel takes fire from the altar, which is before God. And um, he takes this fire, he puts it in the censer full of prayers, and he throws it to the earth. And we have much lightning, and we have uh, thunder, and we have another earthquake, and it signals the beginning of the next set of judgments. Now, as I said before, I think that as we read through this passage and these passages before, if you're on the earth, I believe you'll be able to follow these chronologically. I don't think that these are going to be separated out for any link, huge length of time. We know it's going to begin, and it's going to end seven years later. And so as you, if, if someone is on the earth, they'll have access to the Word of God. They'll be able to see this. They'll understand what's going to come next. The Lord has given us graciously uh, this plan, and in His sovereignty, has allowed that to be uh, here for us to motivate us to share, those who've come to faith, and for those who remain behind will understand what is still to come. And I think even that by itself will convince people uh, that he is true and what he says will always happen. And it appears that the judgments announced by the trumpets follow in order those of the seals. And so we'll just kind of read that. That's the way the Bible unfolds, and we'll just go about it that way. Now remember, the reason for these judgments is to bring about what? Repentance on the earth. That's the reason for it. We're going to see later angels are going to fly through and ask men, turn and repent. Right? Turn away from all these things. Repent. Seek the Lord. Right? And we're going to see that happen. This is the reason for these judgments, to bring about repentance. And even now, after all the rebellion, he's willing that none should perish, but he's not wooing people anymore. Now we have seven trumpets ready to sound, and we are at the end of the break for John. He's had that little parenthetical break where he sees this protection going on, and we're going to move in and see what happens next, next time. So that will be the Sunday night following Easter uh, service, all right? Sunday night that's after, the week after. Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would. Thank you for sticking with me. I know we're a little bit long. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to be in your word tonight and for the fun it is to be with the saints together and to study your word and be enriched by it. As always, we seek you as the one who can explain your word the best. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Help us to be able to find the spots in the word that help us to understand the things you're saying here. 
Uh, thank you for choosing your servant John to go through all of these things and have all the discomfort and uh, uneasiness of seeing all these uh, wonderful things that will soon take place so that we may know them. You're not a God who's hidden things from us, but a God who's exposed them for us all to see. Thank you for the opportunity to study them, for the faithfulness in which you uh, desire us to live as a result of what we know. Give us opportunity, Father, I pray again today for this week that we may be able to share the good news that we have. Help us to be aware of the opportunity. If we've grown a little bit callous towards it, then help our mouths to be open and hearts to hear. Prepare them to receive your word. And we give you praise today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.